I was so here to run with the Bernie Sanders pan racial coalition of cranky old men. Yes. If you call it the Centrum Coalition, it would oh, be God. so good. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Here with me today, we've got Daryl Lynn, we've got Sarah Cliff. We've got a great episode. We've got a great, great white paper. I'm really into this paper. Uh, we've also got a, a hard, a hard end to our recording time. So yeah, we're try got to, some reporting to do. We're going to try to dive so, into it. I don't, obviously, <laughs> but you know, Sarah does. So there's been a lot of Stormy Daniels news, but I think like a Really important sounding substantive story that came was that was it fifty thousand tens of thousands 000 of people approximately from Honduras uh, who were in the United States with legal permission under something called temporary protective status are losing that status. I've read those headlines. It seemed very cruel to me. I saw a lot of tweets from people who also seemed to feel that this was very, uh, very cruel. And Derek, can you tell us like, like what is happening? If you're, you're <laughs> sure. one of these Honduran people, you you read this story. I don't know. Do like, do you get a letter in the mail? Like, pack your bags in six hours. Like, right. what's what's actually going on? So. Temporary protected status, the argument the Trump administration has used is temporary is in the name, and that's true. You know, the government decides every 18 months or so, are we going to renew this for another 18 months? We'll get into the original reasons why you would be given TPS in a little bit. But once you have it, it's a, okay, should we extend it? Should we extend it? Should we extend it? So the Trump administration is saying that they are extending it one last time for Hondurans. So that's one last 18-month extension. They have to now apply even to get that 18-month extension. They haven't announced the official like re-registration dates yet. It's usually about a two-month window. Uh, their current work permits don't expire until July 5th. So at some point before that, they'll announce a new re-registration window. Presumably, most of those people will re-register. Those who don't will lose their work permits in July 2018. Even those who do re-register, they will lose their work permits and become unauthorized, become deportable in January 2020. Uh, so there are two things worth noting here. One of these is that, by definition, a Honduran with TPS has been in the U.S. since the end of 1998, beginning of 1999. That is when TPS was first given for Honduras. And the way TPS works is it's based on individual countries. So when there is a natural disaster or a humanitarian disaster in a particular country, and the U.S. determines that it wouldn't be safe to send people who are currently in the U.S. back to that country, you know, either because they're being deported or because their legal status is running out, the U.S. says, okay, you're cool here. You could just stay here until things calm down in your home country. In the meantime, we'll give you a work permit. We'll make sure you don't get deported. Uh, that's kind of why the 18-month cycle makes some sense. In theory, the government looks every 18 months and goes, has this country recovered from the disaster yet? If they have recovered from the disaster, then it's safe to send people back there. That's cool. If they haven't recovered from the disaster, then it's not safe to send people back. The problem with this and the reason that you might get into 
two decades of people being in the U.S., which is the case with Honduras, which is the case with El Salvador, where about 200,000 people are going to lose their work permits because the Trump administration stripped TPS from El Salvador last fall, as is the case for 50,000 Haitians who are losing TPS actually in summer of 2019 because the Trump administration failed to extend theirs with only a few months in the administration. So that's because every 18 months, past governments have looked back and gone, yeah, okay, Honduras, you know, they had a hurricane in 1998, Hurricane Mitch. After a few years, you can say Honduras has recovered from the hurricane. It does not mean that Honduras is a safe place to send people back to. Those two things were fundamentally divergent. And Meanwhile, the people who were originally protected under TPS have now been here for four and a half years, six years, seven and a half years. But so they've put down roots. So, so I mean, would it be safe to say that what's going on here is that TPS extensions for at least certain classes of people? This this has to be done every eighteen months, right? We were not hearing a lot about it. Right. But I'm assuming given Barack Obama was president for eight years. Yeah. That means he must have done this TPS extension for Hondurans. Yeah. uh, Four or five times. A bunch of times. And actually started it for Haitians. The the Haitian TPS grant was because of the earthquake that they suffered in January 2010. And after a few days of kind of Haitian and immigrant organizations going, wow, this was really bad. Haiti is going to be a disaster for a while. Maybe you should make sure that Haitians don't get sent back there. Obama went, yeah, that's sounds like a good idea. Right. But but this Honduras case seems seems even more telling, right? Like Obama takes office in January 2009. Hondurans have been here on multiple extensions of TPS yep. for over a decade by the time he becomes president. There were as far as I know no controversies or debates about this. Like I don't recall well, Are there? Like is there <laughs> debate during the Obama administration? Not Not particularly. There are people who have been for a while making the argument that the Trump administration is now making that TPS is by its nature temporary, that it's not a good thing for it to be this, you know, indefinite status. But it wasn't like the Obama administration went and did a like deep dive into the Honduras situation. This was just kind of a a routinized checkbox. I mean, they did the Checkbox does include doing an overview of country conditions. So, yeah, you'd get, you know, the Obama administration saying we've determined that Honduras, the country conditions in Honduras are, you know, not safe and stable enough to send people back to that, you know, and put it under the under the heading of, well, they haven't recovered from the hurricane yet. It wasn't considered controversial for one thing, because Honduras had like one of the highest homicide rates sure. on Earth. So no one was saying Honduras was safe. But also because the more rooted a, co- a population gets, the more times previous administrations have extended TPS, the more unthinkable it seems to be the guy who pulls the rug out from under. Right. And, and, and Trump is basically throw, he's flipped that switch. Right. In the he's, other he's being that guy. So, so Trump is now saying, like, look, if you're here, and you've been here for a long time. Like, obviously, Hurricane Mitch was a long time ago. People who are here in Honduras are not, like, here literally because, like, there's a storm. Right. Right. They prefer to live in the United States. They've been here for a long time. They have family. They have jobs here. General quality of life in Honduras is lower than in the United States. 
and the trumpet. Well, again, and also more dangerous. One of like, right. like I'd say it's yeah. not just quality of life. Sure, sure. Got a very right. high. But 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 I mean, but I mean, the, the Trump administration. It previously the practice was a strong presumption that these TPS renewals would be granted. Yes. And Trump is creating a strong presumption that TPS renewals will not be granted. Extremely strong, and it's really important to to emphasize this point as much as possible. This is not just about Honduras. As I mentioned, you know, there are more people from El Salvador and, you know, between El Salvador, Honduras and Haiti, we're talking about about like something like 90 percent of all people who have TPS. There are a few thousand people from several other countries, some of which Trump has already announced, you know, are also losing their their protections. He's extended protections for people from Syria, which seems like kind of a well-duh case, Uh, although he's prevented people who came to Syria since 2016 from getting TPS because apparently that doesn't count as them the civil war. Uh, and he's extended them for people from Sudan. And that is it. The The flip of that presumption is just huge. And the effect is that TPS is going from this indefinite in-between status that, yeah, had to be renewed every 18 months and, yeah, meant that, you know, it didn't create any more permanent way to stay in the U.S. on its own, but was something that people had been building their lives on for decades into this thing that in January 2020, when Hondurans lose it, unless a bunch of new countries get designations, we're going to have like a few thousand people in the U.S. knowing that at any given time, the next time it comes up for renewal, they could be told to leave. And can you talk about like what I I was looking at some of this because I was kind of just curious about like who these people are and what their lives are like. It seems like they have a significantly higher labor force participation rate than most of the population. A lot of them have been having kids since they've been here for a few decades. Like what if maybe we'll just focus on Honduras, if that makes sense. But like, yeah, I, the Honduran and, and Salvadoran population. Yeah, what does the similar. population look like? So the, because TPS doesn't select people to come to the U.S., the population of TPS holders looks a lot like the population of like other Central American immigrants for the most part. It's And this is, you know, the more in addition to the temporary means temporary, the Trump administration really does not like the idea that the government should not personally select the most ideal immigrants to come to the U.S., so, you know, these are not our meritorious immigrants. Right. Exactly. So, you know, so you see things that you would expect to see. They have lower income than the average American. But like Sarah, like you said, they have higher labor force participation. I think a quarter of, you know, I might be misremembering, I might be remembering Salvadorans, but like a quarter of them have kids in the U.S. A s- substantial percentage came to uh, the U.S. before, you know, at, when they were children and just have stayed here for, so they've now lived here for longer than they ever lived in their home countries. Many of them own houses, um, which is, again, something you would expect for like people who have lived here for decades and have been working that they would, you know, purchase a house, but is not, you know, means that it's not going to be the easiest thing for them to pick up and move. So on the one hand, you know, in terms of the way that the Trump administration defines merit in terms of income and education, these aren't the immigrants that you would select. On the other hand, for any definition of rootedness for, you know, duration, uh, Speaking at least some English is like an overwhelming majority, although fluency is relatively low. You know, having children in the U.S., owning a home, all of the things that make it difficult for someone to pick up and leave just because the government is telling them they should pick up and leave. 
it's really hard to imagine a more rooted population than these TPS holders. And of course, what that means in terms of immigration policy is that just because in January 2020, a bunch of Hondurans will lose work permits doesn't mean they're all going to be on the next flight out of the country. It means that many of them will likely make the choice that it's better to stay in the U.S. as unauthorized immigrants than to, you know, sell their houses and move back to Honduras. And, and like it, leave their family behind exactly. as well if they're one of the ones with kids. And, and this also speaks to a sort of profound difference between like U.S. and European practice on these these immigration matters, right? That in, in Europe, a sort of standard thing, if somebody shows up and they are they are a refugee or, or making some kind of asylum claim, is to put them... It's like Europeans like, like love welfare and love highly regulated labor markets. And so you'll like stash people someplace where there's public housing available and usually give them some kind of benefit check and really stringently bar them from working because the idea is people may or may not have some kind of legitimate asylum claim. But like the last thing you want is like people participating in in the labor market. That's like a that's like a European view of of how these things go. In America, it's like the reverse, right? There's like much less done to like we're we're stingy. We don't we don't really like to help people. So there's like much less done to like actively support somebody in this kind of population. But if you got temporary protected status, right, even in the very short term, it's like, okay, you're here because your country was devastated by an earthquake. Like you should go get a job. Right? Like that's like the American way well, of, right. of thinking about things. But the result of that, right, is like if you tell somebody not just like Okay, chill out here for a little while uh, while they resolve that earthquake. But like, here's a permit. Go go get a job. And you're told. I mean, if you're coming from Haiti, right? Like the wages that you can earn with a job in the United States are much higher than the wages you can earn in Haiti, with or without an earthquake. So, given the opportunity to get a job, people are quite eager to do so. And the labor force participation rate among TPS recipients is is really very high, uh, particularly compared to native population with similar education levels. Because it's like, it's a huge opportunity. Right. And, right? and, and, and people take advantage of it. Some of these of people were working under the table before getting TPS. They were right. they were unauthorized immigrants. And then the government said, well, if you're a Honduran in the U.S., you get to stay. And they went, well, that's a better option than I had. Right. But so, but so it's like they were climbing the ladder yeah. of American opportunity in a classic immigrant-y kind of way, right? Like you're here, you get permission to work, you go work. They, they work at higher rates than native-born Americans. They are making money. Right. And you're now you, trying you to buy do your something with the money. Because it's better get. to buy your home than to continue to rely on this like 18-month extension to know whether you're renting, you know, or because you assume that you're going to stay there forever. You know, you want to build equity. You want to stay here. And, uh, right. And American public policy that, favors right. homeownership. So, right. Like, you, yeah. You do it, and, right? and the— what happens when you reverse this presumption, and this is true to a certain extent among unauthorized immigrants as well, although among unauthorized immigrants, the presumption kind of flipped in the late 2000s from very few, relatively few people being deported to relatively many people being deported. When you flip that, the kind of knock-on effects in the community are underexplored to say the least. There's a uh, sociologist Jacob Rook, who's been doing ec- excellent work um, in Utah, who's done some work about foreclosures being much higher in 
neighborhoods with a high percentage of immigrants, there's substantial evidence to suggest that when people get deported, it's, you know, been a big problem for homeownership rates in those communities because you can't, you know, pay your mortgage when you're living out of the country on much lower wages. And why would you bother anyway? In addition to kind of the qualitative stuff that I write a lot about that we've explored in terms of the sense of precariousness that individual immigrants feel, when you take people who have economic and social relationships in a community and either rip those people out or tell them that they're not allowed to, you know, change the basis on which they're interacting with others by saying you're now working under the table, those are things that are going to end up changing American communities in ways that we kind of have a natural experiment for, but it's a natural experiment that's not going to make a lot of people very happy. It feels to me like it's very hard to me to see how this would eventually end well. That it seems like, like Matt was saying, a lot of the things around how we handle this really encourage people to become pretty, you know, integrated into their society, to get a job, to like set down roots, especially if you're thinking of like a disaster situation where you probably have family left in the country, you want to be sending them money, you want to be supporting them. Um and so you have that kind of element of this policy going on. But at the same time, this, you know, fake feeling temporariness that could show up at any point and has shown up now that we've gotten into the Trump administration. It's I don't know. You, you know, immigration law better than I do, Dara. But if there was ever a I guess I'm curious, like, what is usually the end game with these? Like, what is the like good way out of this policy, do you assume that there's just going to be kind of a status quo like we had under President Obama where it'll get renewed and it just feels too cruel at some point? And obviously that assumption has been proved false over the past few weeks. But I, I it seems like kind of almost a, like a humanitarian, well-sounding policy that has a, a, a lot of flaws with the behavior it encourages. And it's like hard to see what the positive endgame is, even though the positive short-term outcomes seem quite clear from a policy like this one? So the short answer to that is that Congress used to be less dysfunctional. I mean, you know, TPS as it's written isn't supposed to be indefinite. And, you know, it's fair to say that when Congress authorized this policy, they weren't imagining people being here for 20 years. But also, through 1996 or arguably even 2000, it was more common than it is. Well, it was certainly more common for Congress to pass immigration bills. And often what those were were like these targeted programs for particular people, often because because of particular situations in particular countries. So even in 1998, when Hurricane Mitch happened, it wouldn't have been totally unthought of that like, okay, yeah, maybe it's going to take a really long time for Honduras to recover from this. But after, you know, seven years or so, if these people are still in the country, Congress will be able to pass something that says Hondurans with TPS, you know, we're now going to open up X many green cards per year for those people. Uh, That wouldn't have been, you know, as ridiculous sounding as it is now. And then in the mid 2000s, you know, you had the idea of comprehensive immigration reform. And one of the, you know, in addition to allowing unauthorized immigrants to become citizens, that would have allowed TPS holders who had been here like unauthorized immigrants for years and years without a path to citizenship. It would have opened one up for them as well. 
once Congress kind of stopped doing anything on immigration, at that point, it was very uncontroversial for the executive branch to just kind of keep extending it. It was like for a while under Bush and early Obama, it was accepted that when Congress couldn't do something on immigration, then the executive would step in and do it. And like that was the outcome that everyone wanted anyway. And so no one was really going to make any noise. That is definitely not the case anymore. This idea of executive amnesty has gotten hold among people who might not have focused on TPS before, might actually want people to leave the country. And in the meantime, the latest proposal to allow TPS recipients to get green cards was rather famously shouted down by Donald Trump because he was in a meeting with Dick Durbin and Dick Durbin was going through the list of countries and got to Haiti. And Trump said, we don't want any more people from Haiti. Kick them out, which like fails to understand how TPS works, but also is a good reflection of why you can't go any get anywhere on this, because the idea that you're going to get Trump's Republican Party to say, oh, yeah, these people are low income earners from terrible countries, but they've been in the U.S. for a while. So we're going to give them green cards like it's really hard to fathom that. OK, so let, let's talk about the, the legal niceties here. And I, I will play cranky emailer. Yes. Um, and play like, cranky okay, emailer. look, if these people from Honduras, if they're so great, if they're living here, they're working, they love America so much, they maybe got kids here, they're owning houses, like they should have done the right thing and gone and become citizens. Like they've had all this time, Dara. Like why are they sitting around on this 18-month TPS extension now whining to me? Like why? It's been 1998. Like why didn't they get in line and, and do the right thing? I actually love this argument even more when it's about TPS than when it's about unauthorized immigrants, because for unauthorized immigrants, you can actually say, oh, you were just sitting on your butt for 20 years. You didn't, you know, actually do anything. For TPS, you're arguing, oh, yeah, every 18 months you renewed your TPS status. That was a lazier option than just applying for a green card once. Wow. But, you know, the, <laughs> the actual answer is that the only way to get citizenship in the U.S. is through having a green card. But the ways to get a green card are multiple, but all of them are very narrow. And they usually revolve around having a relationship with a U.S. citizen or in some cases a green card holder, a family relationship, or having a relationship with a U.S. business that will sponsor you for a green card. There are exceptions for like extraordinary ability and, you know, the thing that Melania came on and all of that, possibly the thing that Melania came on. That's a whole different episode. But, um, you know, for, for extremely rich people who can get investor green cards, but for the most part, you have to have a very particular family or business relationship. And somebody who was in the U.S., you know, in 1998, who did have one of those relationships probably does not have TPS anymore. They've probably decided that it makes more sense for them to actually have full U.S. citizenship. It's actually when we say there are 57,000 Hondurans, uh, the asterisk there is that there aren't great stats on this because the way the government officially counts it is that unless it has rejected a TPS application from you, you still have TPS, even if you fail to re-register or even if you now have a different status or if you died. Um, so, like, the government's numbers of who has this are, like— So they're not way, tracking it. No, they're, they're not, oh, right. um, although the estimates tend to be pretty consistent. But there's evidence to suggest that, you know, 10 or a couple tens of thousands of people— over the course of these 20 years have either gone back to Honduras or have been able to get a more permanent legal status in the U.S. The reasonable conclusion to draw after somebody has been re-upping their TPS status every 18 months for 20 years is that they're doing that because they 
don't have a spouse who's a U.S. citizen. They don't have an adult child who was born in the U.S. who can sponsor them. They don't have access to any of the traditional paths to having a green card. And, you know, the problem that Congress has been trying to fix for 10 years as part of comprehensive immigration reform is that you have this group of people who are here legally for a very long time and aren't able to fully become citizens of the United right. States. Right. So so let's let's just, just like make this super simple, right? Like no matter how long you have been here legally on TPS, yes. you were not allowed to apply for citizenship. Right. If you've been not, here for a certain, not simply because you have TPS. Right. If, right. if you've been here for a certain number of years as a green card holder, you are allowed to right. go become a citizen, but TPS is not a green card in that sense, and it does not confer any special right. pathway to obtaining a green card that a or person— Or any pathway. Right. I, I mean, but yeah. it's, it's in terms of if you want a green card as a TPS holder, it's just the same as if you were living in Honduras or anyplace else, right? You, right. There's no—and a thing Congress could have but did not do was like instead of a giant sweeping comprehensive immigration overhaul, in theory, sometime in like 2011 when TPS for Hondurans was not a big hot-button political topic, some kind of law could have passed to create a special Honduran green card opportunity, but there was no movement around that. It was bundled into the comprehensive yeah. immigration push. And and those different comprehensive bills did attempt to address right. the TPS situation, but it was never broken out. And so now they're just sort of Right. At, there was never like the foresight not, not to overstate the simplicity to, yeah, of, you know, just the the thing about green cards is because they're because very few legislators are willing to say, let's have more green cards. You know, and I think that this is something that Matt, you and I have discussed on the weeds before. It turns out to be this, you know, like less horse trading than horse guarding, where everybody wants the sure. populations of green cards that currently exist for their people to stay. And so it's, you know, you can't really create 57,000 green cards at a go. But yeah, this would have been a small problem to to solve it keeps getting wrapped into bigger problems. It is now a much bigger problem to solve because more urgent. So what do we know about like what to expect of what happens to this group? Because like you said, they're obviously like they're not gonna be mass flights to Honduras on like yeah. the day this expires. Like I don't know if there's historical precedent or like what you look at, like what happens to these people in 2020. So historical precedent precedent is no good because the U.S. didn't have a deportation machine capable of deporting tens of thousands of people uh, until about, you know, 2006 or later. Arguably, they, you know, surveillance technology and database interoperability mean that they have much better ways of, like, finding people who are trying to be in the shadows now than than we really we even know. Like the question of what data ICE has on people is a very open one. But generally, the government tends to say that there is a firewall between the agencies that actually grant status and ICE so that privacy concerns mean that they can't send lists of things over to ICE. Those are regulation guided. So in theory, a very, very vindictive Trump administration could go, yeah, we'll send lists of all the TPS holders. 
maybe I'll I'll end up feeling really naive for saying this in 18 months, but everything we've seen from the Trump administration so far is that while they are going after low-hanging fruit, that doesn't mean that they are going and seeking out particular populations just because they have information on them. They're waiting for people to come to them or they're waiting to encounter them in other ways. That's an easy, you know, that's a low lift so they can get more people into deportation proceedings that way than if they were trying to, like, seek out TPS holders who, you know, who have become unauthorized. The other thing is that the government isn't immediately going to know who's leaving. You know, you don't have to, like, sign a register saying, I, TPS holder, am now leaving the U.S. K. thanks, bye. So, you know, there are going to be questions about how many people have stayed in the U.S. and how many have decided to return to Honduras or to go to a third country. The other kind of big question mark here is that a lot of Haitians, after the announcement that they were not renewing Haiti's TPS or would stop renewing it, uh, decided to go to Canada and seek asylum there. And that's implicating a bilateral agreement between the U.S. and Canada about how to treat asylum seekers uh, and could be, you know, is, is something that I would flag for migration nerds as something to watch over the next 12 to 18 months as more people start losing TPS and start finding themselves, you know, less protected in the U.S. than they have ever been, but also not particularly wanting to go back to countries they haven't seen in 20 years. Although, I mean, it's it's worth saying, I mean, Haitians have a... Um something of an in 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 Canadian politics because of because of language issues and the existence of a non-trivial Haitian community in in Montreal that I think Central Americans you know would I, I mean it, the, the Haitian efforts to get asylum in Canada have not been like wildly successful right but but you could imagine a, a political pathway to that working whereas I have a, a very hard time seeing uh, 200,000 Salvadorans getting asylum in Canada, um, both just the incredibly large number of people involved relative to the population. Um, but so I, a point you've made on, on previous podcasts that I'm wondering if it if it applies here is that in the, in the courts front, the deportation pipeline is essentially full already. So you could deport former – I mean presumably some number of former TPS holders will stay here unauthorized and some of them are going to end up getting caught by ICE regardless of what exactly happens with the enforcement priorities. Some of them will wind up being deported. But at least my understanding from our previous conversations is that changing these TPS rules won't really alter the aggregate number of deportations because there's a – Basically, a, a limited deporting capacity that is more or less full all the time and making more people deportable impacts the people but not the size of the pipeline. This is currently true. I am genuinely unsure whether it is going to be true 18 months from now. Um, the other – you know, we were talking a little bit before taping about how a lot of the things we talk about with Trump on immigration, like, oh, he's deporting people. Oh, ICE is going into people's homes, are not new to Trump. They're just newly salient to a certain group of progressives. On TPS, there really is this big difference. And the other area in which the Trump administration is making policy in kind of an unprecedented way is in the immigration courts where there have been – there's starting to be real movement toward – uh, making it harder for people to, you know, pursue their cases over a length of time, harder for them to qualify for asylum in some cases. So if the situation that exists now exists in January 2020, yeah, somebody getting picked up by ICE uh, who used to have TPS, even if they don't have TPS anymore, will say, 
until I have a final order of deportation, you can't just deport me. And it will take a couple of years for them to go through the court process, at, at which point, you know, maybe there is something that a lawyer can find for them where they can, you know, there are lots of small ways to get relief from deportation in court. But if the Trump administration does what the Trump administration would like to do, it will become much less typical for somebody to take a couple of years on a court case. And it will become much more typical for somebody to get booked by ICE, sent to an immigration judge, told that they probably don't have a case to stay in the U.S. and get their deportation order signed in relatively quick And order. so this is probably a big – it's been dawning on me lately that, you know, there's a lot of like talk about the midterms in a, in a horse racy sense but not that much in a – in a policy sense because people feel like things are sort of already gridlocked and that gridlock is likely to continue. But this sounds like the kind of thing where there's a real a real potential for difference, right? That a continued or in some sense revived Republican majority and a increasingly Trumpy congressional Republican party really could make moves to like change the immigrate court process, to change the funding levels and sort of start widening this pipeline, whereas a, a Democratic majority is unlikely to want to do that. Right. The, Furthermore, could even step in to like, you know, kind of codify some of the, you know, to codify a due process in a way that doesn't exist in a formal way in the immigration courts right now. And, and, the, and the give and take, or I mean, the fact that the Trump administration is trying to push forward on like a dozen different immigration crackdowns right. means that if there was a Democratic majority, some of this stuff that's been sort of hypothetical, like Dick Durbin spitballing with John Kelly, if you had to deal with a Speaker Nancy Pelosi, like some kind of dealing might have to actually happen where we say, OK, Trump has this long list of things that they want. They can maybe get some of them in exchange for doing some things that Democrats want. I mean, or not. I mean, we don't really know. But it's but it's a real difference between a Kevin McCarthy is here to like try to help deportations go through the court system faster or like Nancy Pelosi is here to try to say, look, if you want money for your ICE agents, you're going to have to, you know. But I don't know. I mean, like this guy come back to Dara's argument about the politics of this, because I think you also have like DACA becomes relevant and looming in the background when you think of like the DACA population, like framed as like striving students, like trying to get educated versus you know, how Trump sees the TPS population coming from shithole countries, you know, low educated, not the merit based ones. I wonder how much actually changes like if we're talking about, OK, we're like trying to get some priority done. I, I mean, you follow this more than I do, Dara, but like I, I don't know if they become like the top priority of Democrats if like DACA is another thing they want to like circle back to and work on. So. DACA and TPS are very similar for Democrats because the political narrative of people who have lived in the U.S., you know, who have given to their communities should be allowed to stay is very strong. I think that the the bigger political question really relies on how much, as with so many political questions right now, relies on how much Donald Trump's individual psychology matters to Republican dealmaking and strategy. Because there's a reason that Republicans weren't making a stink about TPS in 2010, 2011, even even in 2012, 2014, when they started making a stink about like executive amnesties and deferred action. There wasn't as much noise about TPS because Republicans understand that people losing legal status who have it is not generally a good look for them. 
Donald Trump, however, does appear to believe that there is something uniquely bad about people based on the countries that they come from. And so has, you know, shown a resistance to allowing people from countries he doesn't like to stay in the U.S. So I definitely, I you know, I think that, frankly, TPS and you know, the courts, it's pretty easy to see a, you know, good government compromise along the lines of lots of funding, minimal involvement from Attorney General Jeff Sessions in like setting policy and just allow different judges to like deport or not deport as their heart's content. Uh On TPS, I do think that there is an opportunity for that to be like DACA, a small thing that a Democratic majority could get, even if Republicans somehow lose the Senate. It's easy to see though that being a compromise that maybe Republicans are not willing to filibuster in a way that like a broader amnesty or other, you know, democratic priorities might not be. I, you know, I mean, also that the shifting economic situation, you know, is potentially relevant here uh, where, you know, I mean, I, I saw an earnings call from just like consumer packaged goods companies and, you know, they were they were talking about like their rising input prices and the unemployment rate is, is 3.9 percent now. And I do think, you know, not in an overwhelming sense, but but I think an issue where control of Congress matters is that I think that if congressional majorities were trying to say, like, look, like, let's not be throwing people out of jobs that they hold, that in a low unemployment environment, you know, that's going to be a case that has some purchase with people, with particularly with moderate Democrats. That's you know, a who, really good there, point. There's, there's certain things they do and, and don't want to do. I mean, I know my um, my favorite Trump supporter is a, is a home flipper uh, or working in my neighborhood. He's he's very upset about losing his, his Salvadoran roof guys. Um, you know, and to his credit, I mean, sometimes I'm thinking, I'm like rolling my eyes. I'm like, you're mad that the thing that Donald Trump, who you're enthusiastic <laughs> about, is doing is cracking down on immigrants. But here is a case where it's easy to laugh at the like, oh, no, no, I didn't mean those immigrants. Those are the good ones. Uh, But genuinely, I think this guy who employs immigrants had an understanding that the immigrants who were working for him legally (laughs) – yeah. We're not the illegal immigrants who he was arguing for a crackdown on, right? And like he is annoyed that like people who in a completely above board, 100 percent legal way were in an enduring contractual relationship with him. The government is now like, oh, no, sorry, you can't have those guys work for you anymore um, or or you're a criminal. It's a smallish niche of people who are the employers of, of TPS recipients, but it is a different constituency from the immigrants themselves, even from the employers of undocumented immigrants, right? Because it, I mean, it's they're going to become illegal, but that's just because Donald Trump decided that it was illegal, right? That is a that is a different a different kind of thing, um, right? I think you know, for all of the attention that got paid to high tech companies mobilizing, and you know, some other like large corporations mobilizing on DACA because. You know, immigrants who are educated, who have, you know, who have been legally working as young people, you know, young, upwardly mobile people, they don't want to then have to go through and say, okay, are you still legal or not? But the building trades groups have mobilized on TPS and a couple of other industry groups as well, because they, you know, their immigrant workforce isn't necessarily a bunch of upwardly mobile you know, Latinos with college degrees, it's people who have been working in the U.S. for as long as they've been here, which is 20 years. I mean, who knows where where it will come? It it just had been occurring to me that, like, the whole midterms have been 
getting discussed in a sort of symbolic, like Trump-type terms. But there's there's so many different things happening on immigration. I think it's completely unpredictable, like how they're going to go exactly. But we, I think we saw in the last sort of failed round of, of deal-making that ability to set the agenda and control the floor actually makes a big difference there because, you know, we're talking about building trades leaders. We're talking about a number of Republican senators who were pro-DACA. Um, I think the idea of a crackdown on legal immigration remains very controversial among Republican elites. And I think a population that is spread out across, I think Texas and California have the largest. Right. TPS population, so one that is spread out, like not just in Demo- a Democrat stronghold, but right, right, one. exactly. Um, but, but with that, maybe of, we should take a break. Because yes, speaking yes, of uh, elites, so, yes, yes. Speaking of change, people coming in and out of the country. Oh boy, change. <laughs> I've been drinking coffee for a long time. A lot of it, like, bad coffee. Sometimes I'd get, like, nicer coffees, more expensive. I never really got it. Then I had blue bottle coffee, and it really makes a difference. Like, that is coffee that really tastes really nice, distinctive sort of flavor profiles. And it makes you see, like, you know, my whole life, even the nice coffees I've been drinking, honestly, like, they they were not that nice. And, And now with blue bottle coffee, you can get this most delicious coffee in the world delivered right to your door. And what's really special about Blue Bottle is the freshness, right? So coffee beans, it's an agricultural product, right? It tastes better when it's fresh. What they do is they roast and ship coffee to your home within 48 hours of you placing your order. So the beans arrive at peak freshness. One sip, it makes you realize you've been drinking subpar coffee your entire life. There's coffee and then there's Blue Bottle coffee. And and the big difference is that Blue Bottle has an insane dedication to coffee. They search far and wide to secure exclusive relationships with independent growers all over the world, and they source only the most delicious and sustainable coffee there is. So then they have a coffee match quiz that helps you find the perfect coffee for your palate. From blends to espresso to single origins, Blue Bottle Coffee has it all. And here's the great deal we've got for you. If you hurry to bluebottlecoffee.com slash weeds, you get $10 off your first coffee subscription order. So again, that's bluebottlecoffee.com slash weeds, bluebottlecoffee.com slash weeds. You get $10 off. It's going to taste great. Our research paper today comes to us from, from Matt Grossman and Daniel Thaler, um, and it's titled Mass Elite Divides in Aversion to Social Change and Support for Donald Trump. Um, really broadly speaking, I think the finding here will be familiar to people who know about economic anxiety, quote unquote, versus racism. But what is interesting is that Grossman and Thaler look at a question that is related to racial attitudes, but not the same as them, right? Which is what they call aversion to change. And they do a series of surveys for whatever reason, they insisted on redacting the name of the surveying entity. So the methods section is really funny. <laughs> yes. And it yeah. says things like, our data come from redacted's redacted. <laughs> but anyway. Attribution is a bear. So so they ask people whether they agree with, with the statement, our country is changing too fast, undermining traditional American values. And they also ask them the sort of the inverse. By accepting diverse cultures and lifestyles, our country is steadily improving. Now – as you would expect, your sort of aversion to change on that index is related to racial resentment. It's related to authoritarianism indexes. It's related to ethnocentrism indexes. But it's not identical to those things. And, and they show a, a couple things statistically. One is that they show support for Donald Trump is correlated with 
sort of racism and racial resentment, but it is more closely correlated with aversion to change per se than with specific racial resentment. The other thing they show which is very significant is that the correlation with aversion to change holds up when you look at non-white people because I do think this is often goes a little bit like missing in, in some of this discussion, but Trump gets a little bit less than 10 percent of the African-American vote, maybe about a quarter of the Latino vote. These are not high numbers, but they're not nobody, right? I mean, you're talking about millions and millions of, of people of color voting for, for Donald Trump. And, you know, basically the, the finding here is that the working class Latino Trump voters hold similar attitudes toward change sort of generically as working class white Trump voters. So they show that, you know, on, on a mass level, right, this like aversion to change is, is the key thing. And then they also have this survey of political elites in Michigan. And the key thing they find is that even among Republican elites, there is very little aversion to change. And that that really shows a big gap in how Republican elites or elites in general and the mass public think about Trump. And I, I think this is important in a number of ways. And, and one is that I sometimes hear a kind of a, a rhetoric from people on the left who are annoyed by the supporting Trump is about racism stuff because they feel that it's a whitewash of Republican elites who they think of as like just as racist and just as bad as Donald Trump or any, you know, gun-toting rural Michigander. And this like slices the salami a little bit thinner, right? And it shows specifically that elite Republicans are not opposed to change, right, in the way that many rank-and-file people in America are, including a substantial minority of people of color. Right. Of course, this isn't, you know, it's worth bearing in mind that what the views somebody espouses personally in a survey and the way that they want to see the world may or may not be consistent with the world they are creating as political actors. So there is still some room for the critique that Republicans sure didn't mind, you know, racism as long as they were the ones in the driver's seat. Right. But I mean, I, I do think that this is like an important distinction because you might not have a problem with bank redlining, disadvantaging African-American borrowers or, or communities, or even have a problem with police officers using their discretion in a racially discriminatory way, but still be a Republican politician in Texas who feels that Texas is great and that Texas has been growing, Texas has been attracting immigrants from all over the world, which shows that Texas is awesome because Texas has low taxes and less regulation. And I think this is like pre-Trump administration Rick Perry, right? Like this is the Rick Perry who gaffs in 2012 by saying it would be heartless to deny undocumented youth the ability to attend a, a Texas university. Super Republican guy, I think doing absolutely nothing to like affirmatively undo the legacy of racial injustice in the United States of America, but a forward-looking Texas enthusiast, right? And what this survey is showing is that lots of people, particularly on the Republican side, but including, I think, critically, like Democrats who flipped to Trump, there are like a lot of people who are just like they are not, they're not into it. Like they don't think it is good well, for the country to change. And I always think of like my my late grandmother, who I, I pray would not have somehow become a, a Trump voter in her old age, but she used to like 
bitterly, bitterly complain that like the kind of Italian restaurants that she used to like to go to in Long Island were like not around anymore that, you know, and that now there was all this Thai food everywhere. And like, it wasn't that she hated Thai people. It also wasn't that she was like super woke on racial issues, but she just like, she was old and things were different from how they had been when she was young. And she did not like that things were different. Well, and so I, I think, think what, one of the other things that jumped out at me from the paper is that you actually see the same thing happening on the Democrat side in the in the opposite direction, where Democrat elites, um, you know, they are much less open to change than their voters. So this cuts. I, I think, like, if you think about you know all the kind of tension and hand wringing over like a divided America, you actually don't see as much of a divide among elites. If you look at um, you know, there's these charts in the paper that kind of look at openness to change. And the ones for political insiders, for Democrats and Republicans, they look really similar. Like everyone, there's a big bar in the middle. The ones for the general population, they look kind of like opposites of each other, where you have a strong openness to change among the general population of Democrats, a strong aversion among the general population of Republicans. Um, So I was interested. I think we talk about a lot of issues on the weeds where you have some kind of like asymmetric thing going on. Republican Party is changing but it was interesting to me that this divide seems to exist for both political parties kind of being pulled, kind of going more moderate on this issue than their their base currently is right now. So I think the other thing, you know, I want to go back to, to Matt, what you said about your grandmother not having a problem with Thai people, but having a problem with change, because the question for me is how much is this framework of aversion to change substantively distinct from racial resentment. And one answer to that is it's measuring different things. It's measuring the things that your grandmother, you know, would endorse about like, it sucks that there are all these Thai restaurants now, rather than attitudes toward people as a group. You know, if you ask somebody, how do you feel about African-Americans, that may be a different answer to, you know, do you think that, you know, affirmative action has gone too far, even though in practice, those are probably going to be politically, you know, similar views. The other part of that, though, is that, and this is something that I think they emphasize a little bit in the paper, but I've also talked to Matt Grossman and something that he definitely thinks is salient is this isn't just about racial change. It's also about other kinds of change. It's also about social change, which is often kind of a proxy for, you know, the sexual revolution, the rise of same-sex partnerships, the super essentialist way that I have put this in the past, which I would not, you know, absolutely fight for if I had to, but I think is a useful frame is the culture wars after a brief respite where they were about sex are now back to being about race. And I think that this paper at least tries to put forward the notion that it's it's still both, right? I don't know that that is true. I think that if you look at the in-depth qualitative work that Arlie Hochschild has done, if you look at the, you know, this paper, the economic anxiety papers, they're all getting at the same core idea, which is other groups in society are getting ahead. Our group is not. It is other groups' fault. That is something that is much more amenable to racism than it is to, say, homophobia. It's really hard to, you know, have it 
model of the world that is based on the gay people, especially when, you know, your son or your nephew or whatever could be gay. It's much easier to say people who are not like us are getting all the goodies. The only way for us to restore where we were is for us to take the goodies back. But I think one like key dividing line I've seen my reporting for like people who are like me versus not is working. I think that's one where you could actually see somewhat as clearly as as race. Um that this sense of like, because I've done reporting in rural Kentucky where there are not many racial minorities, but there's still a lot of resentment in a sense like people are getting something that I'm not. And the people who are getting that thing are people who are unemployed, like seem to be the dividing line or people who weren't hard workers, whereas like I am a hard worker and I should be rewarded for that. So I think, you know, in a lot of ways, this paper felt really familiar and I was kind of like, it, it feels a little bit like, you know, social, and I know they get into this, but it still felt by the end of reading it, like that social change felt like a stand-in for race. But I, I would concede there are other kind of things that can be seen as like an us versus them and who has the upper hand and the idea of like a person who works versus does who, who doesn't seems to be kind of one of those dividing lines that I've seen show up in my reporting. Well, I think the other really tricky thing is when you're talking to people who would not endorse, you know, who would not agree with the statement, you know, I don't like African-Americans, but who do endorse these other beliefs about social change, telling them that the root of their problems is that they don't like, you know, attempts to ameliorate the effects of racism, like they hear that and go, well, I'm not racist. I love African-Americans, you know, like this is why the concept of structural racism is such a useful one and one that ideally is supposed to negate any sense of you're calling me a racist. It's a way to talk about, okay, your personal attitudes are irrelevant to the question of whether in reality, groups are equally able to get ahead and whether your assessment of who's getting all the goodies and who has to work and who doesn't have to work is correct. Okay, but, but so two things where, where I do think these, these are different, right? If I think about people people who I've known over the years in, in my neighborhood, right, uh, I don't know any uh, old African-Americans living in Shaw who endorse structural racism. I do know some who are kind of cranky old guys who talk about how it was better back in the day and how like the kids these days are doing this and that and, you know, people don't go to church like they should and like that kind of thing, right? Like there is backward looking nostalgia, maybe more common among white people because one of the ways in which American society has changed is racial diversity. But American society has changed in many ways. And there is a certain amount of cranky oldsterdom lurking around in all kinds of, of groups, right? And that is itself a political force or is a potentially political force. And, and I know one guy who, who who's since, since moved away. But he told me, you know, I think I think a lot of stuff Donald Trump says makes a lot of sense. And it's too bad. It seems like he hates black people. Where did he move to? Suburbs. Oh, OK. So um, he just cashed out. He sold his so, house. So, made, right. Made, so made, you're made saying that this is a typical longtime D.C. resident moving out to the suburbs so the white gentrifiers can move in. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> um, but, you know, 
there is a a certain amount of of this out there. And I would say that like Bernie Sanders, right, who certainly did not campaign by like saying, I want to turn back the clock on racial justice. He 100 percent campaigned as a cranky old man who said that things were better back in the day. And now you could always say there was a tension here because like Bernie seemed very nostalgic for a time that was objectively disadvantageous to racial minorities. And there was like a a palpable tension there, right? But like his policy agenda was incredibly woke, but his like emotional disposition was that like back in the day things were better. And that is just a a mental signpost that can mean something to, to different kinds of people. I also think particularly when you talk about Trump, if you look at places where Trump did well, one thing that, that I've heard from, from some Democrats working in places like rural Maine and rural Wisconsin where Democrats used to do pretty well but where Trump really kind of cleaned up is that these are places where basically everybody is white. And Democrats' old understanding of the politics was that not that like their constituents were incredibly forward thinking on racial issues but that divisive racial politics did not play in northern Maine, right? That this wasn't Alabama because there was no racial conflict, right? So you would sound like a moron if you showed up there with a lot of like race stuff, right? Because like that's that's nothing. And that now they feel that Democrats are hurting in those areas because it's now Democrats who are showing up everywhere in America with a message that's a lot of race stuff. And it sounds to white people who used to be perfectly comfortable being in an abstract political coalition with African-Americans living in Milwaukee or Chicago or wherever else that like the Democratic Party does not talk to white people in white communities anymore. That to me is like it's part of this change dynamic that is obviously intertwined with racial type issues but is something of a, a, a turning of the leaf away from sort of the old politics of race to a new politics of race where, you know, Democrats are, are very heavily front-loading the idea that diversity and change is like a positive in America and you have a lot of people living in homogenous communities and they are being told, no, your kind of communities are bad. So I wonder if that is actually the dynamic or if it's just that Democrats were wrong about racial politics and homogenous communities all along. Like the current governor of Maine is not only someone who has endorsed racial profiling, but like someone who is casting the opioid epidemic in Maine as a problem that is being brought in from outside the state by drug dealers who he gives stereotypically African-American names. Right. Like it's not just that he himself is, is clearly right? a racist. Yes, D-Money, thank you. Um, I forgot it's about not that. just that he is clearly a racist, but like he's able to use this genuine problem that is facing the community and unite it with mediatized images of drug dealers that like people can still see on cops, regardless of whether their own communities have any, you know, people of color in them and say, well, OK, the problem must be the fault of these people coming in from outside. That's a racial politics that's going to work in a homogenous community. Arguably, you know, the politics of Metropolitan areas with crime over the last several decades have seen something similar where like people in white suburbs don't see black people except on the evening news when they're getting arrested by police and therefore they're worried about crime in the cities. Like it's not clear to me that you can't engage in a racial politics in a 
in a homogenous community without even in the absence of Democrats going in and saying diversity is a good thing. What's definitely a good thing is ending this show on time uh, and then recommending it to all of your friends, recommending all your other Vox Media Podcast Network uh, shows, encouraging outsiders to flood in to the Weeds Facebook group uh, to continue the discussion. Definitely do all of those things. Thank our, our sponsor. Thank our engineer, Griffin Tanner. And we will be back on Friday. 